Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Ann Seckel. Ann is the office managing partner of Foley's New York office, where she has a practice focused on litigation. In addition to her role as OMP, she's also the New York office's chair of litigation In this discussion, Anne reflects on growing up in Jersey City, New Jersey, attending Columbia University and Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law. In discussing why she decided to become a lawyer, Anne also shares a really interesting story about how it was serving jury duty that piqued her interest, caused her to subsequently get a job as a paralegal, and later to decide to apply to law school. And after covering Anne's path to law, we then work on unpacking her time at Foley. Anne has a very interesting story where she essentially started at Foley as a paralegal and has been with the firm ever since. She reflects on what it is that attracted her to litigation. She tells us a bit about what's keeping her busy these days. And I also get Anne to talk about her many leadership roles in the firm. Finally, we wrap up our conversation with Anne providing wonderful insight on the importance of showing up and being present. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anne Seckel. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Can you give your professional introduction? Sure. Thank you for having me. My name is Anne Seckel. I'm the managing partner of the New York office of Foley and Lardner. I'm a longtime member of the firm's labor and employment practice group. And um, I split my time about 50% doing employment litigation, employment counseling, and 50% doing general commercial litigation. Thank you so much for that. And it's funny, I don't know if I've said this on the show, but I ask people to give their professional intro because there's so much more to us. And of course, we're going to explore all of that over our time together, but that was perfect. Um, And so with that, let's just jump right in with the, where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I can see where I'm from. I'm sitting in my office on 39th and Park, and I grew up right across the river in Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, And um, yeah, that's that's where I'm from. You're like, I grew up over there. I can't see out your window, but you're like, it's right. I'm touching it with my (laughs) finger on the window. (laughs) Well, we have. So I have an amazing view. I have a view that looks downtown and across the the river, um, across the Hudson River into New Jersey with the Empire State building right in it. So I can see downtown Jersey City, which is not far from where I grew up. And I have seen that view because I did have the opportunity to um, visit New York, I think in November. And it's actually distracting for me sometimes to visit, whether it be Foley's office or other New York law firms, when there's a great view, I'll often have to, whoever I'm talking to, I'm like, hold on one second. Can I finish looking out your window? And then, and then we can speak because I'm highly distracted right now. It's a tactic during depositions. Now, you know, not to give away secrets, but I always put the witness facing out because they're mesmerized by our beautiful view. They pay zero attention to the real questions and then they just tell me good things. (laughs) That's so funny. We're already getting into litigation strategy. So we're going to move away from that, but we'll get back to it soon. So give me a snapshot of, let's say, little Anne growing up. 
what sort of kid were you or what sort of hobbies did you have to, I don't know, say a snapshot from like late elementary school or middle school. What were you into? Yeah, I was very into worrying about everything. I <laughs> That was, was your hobby? That was, that was my pastime. hobby. I had a lot of journals where I talked about all the things that could go wrong. I had a lot of books that my parents bought me to help me not worry about the things that could go wrong. I mean, in lots of ways, I was just, you know, like a normal kid and I had two brothers and I liked playing with them and we had a backyard and, you know, things were fine. But I, I, when I think about what I was, what I spent the most of my like free time doing. It really was thinking about what could go wrong to concerns about the world. Yes. (laughs) Do you still have those journals by chance? I do. And my mom read me some the other night and I was at at a dinner and I was mortified. I had forgotten just how weird they were. (laughs) I ask because there's, you know, given that we have had one of our uh, Foley partners go on to be a New York Times bestselling author, there's, there's other careers folks have. And I was like, maybe in 10 years you'll publish. Oh, there's nothing. There's nothing to be done with these. No, this is, this is just for my own personal humiliation. That's it. Okay. Well, one, I appreciate your honesty and just saying my pastime was worrying about things. Were there other, were there, were you like into sports or anything like that? I just asked because a surprising number of our, our attorneys actually were. Yeah, no, I, um, I played volleyball in grammar school and in high school and, you know, I've always really enjoyed it. And then I come from a fairly musical family. So even though I am not musical, I was given the opportunity to take piano lessons and violin lessons. And I did that, you know, all through grammar school and high school. All right. So let's move to high school and talk about that decision to go to college. What was that how did you make that decision? Where did you go? And by the way, I'm buzzing past everything else. So if there's a really funny story about a part-time job you'd like to share, anything like that, we could do that too. But otherwise I've moved to the transition to college. Sure. You know, I went to um, Loyola School, which is a um, Jesuit independent school in Manhattan. And I commuted from New Jersey into New York. And I really, really, really loved it. Um, I really loved being in Manhattan. And um, certainly I I ultimately went to Columbia University and, and certainly staying in New York was something that was attractive to me. But mostly, you know, at the time that I was applying, my parents said, you know, your, your grades are good. Your SAT scores are good. You should apply to any Ivy League school you want and a couple of others. And you make the decision based on the best place that you get in. And so, you know, I, I there were two schools that were uh, neck and neck. And, and, and I'm not quite certain that Columbia was the best school, but it was the one because of New York that I that I chose to attend and, uh, and never looked back. Did you know what you wanted to do in college? Did you have any idea? No, I really didn't. My parents have always um, sort of told my brothers and I that the most important thing about education was finding something that you enjoyed learning. Don't worry about the vocational aspect of it so much like that will come later. And so I viewed college as kind of an intellectual um, endeavor, just find something that you like learning about and see where it takes you. And so I wound up, I guess, maybe in my freshman year, or if not my first semester, sophomore year, um, taking an introduction to abnormal psychology and really, really liked it, um, found it kind of, 
I guess, morbidly fascinating, all the things that can go wrong with human psyche, but then also really, really interested in, in all the things that can be done to sort of shape who we are as people and, and make, um, you know, and, and move towards being more functional um, in society. And so then I became a psychologist, a psychology major. It's just very funny that you said all the things that can go wrong with the human psyche and you talked about how's your you know pastime was, was worrying about things. And then also because I follow, I try to follow each guest path on LinkedIn and in their bio. And just to make sure, maybe this was clear to listeners, but so Loyola School, that was your high school. And then of course, as you mentioned, you went to Columbia for undergrad. And it was interesting. I know you just quickly touched on that it's a Jesuit school. We've had a few other guests who either for high school or for college were at Jesuit universities. And I won't dig too far in it, but I will say there's some really, I think, interesting educational pillars behind a Jesuit education that are just interesting to, to mention. So that's neat. But we we got you at Columbia as a psychology major, perhaps learning more maybe about why you worried about things when you were younger. I don't know if that if it helped you helped you run that down a bit. But was the thought so after college I will be a psychologist or was it just I or was that I find this interesting and then we'll see what happens? No, I I, I began working first mostly as a, a gainful employment in uh, an animal cognition laboratory at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Um, And I was working with rhesus monkeys doing um, experiments to determine their ability to uh, understand numbers and other aspects of numerosity. And I really liked it. I liked the discipline of working in a lab. Um, And so while it wasn't sort of squarely what I saw myself doing as a psychologist, I was very, very much drawn to the academic life. And so I did think that I would work in a lab for a period of time, hopefully on human subjects, not not rhesus monkeys, and then transition into a PhD program. And I thought that for a, for a very long time, it really wasn't until after I graduated um, and was continuing to work in the lab that I, I had an experience that kind of shifted my focus a little bit and, and played on or played up some of the concerns I had about pursuing an academic uh, career. So was that, that experience was during college and after with the animal laboratory? Yeah, I, I worked from, I think it was my sophomore year through right after graduation. And then also, I'm going to back up a little bit because part of this podcast, in addition to learning about folks at Foley, is also just proving that we're normal people, too, who didn't always know what was going on. Because now, of course, when I pull up your bio, Anne, it is a lot of leadership positions at the firm, in addition to, of course, being a litigation partner. Uh, So it's just interesting to follow your path and how you arrived here. But one, was there much of an adjustment for you to college in general um, when when you look back? Yes, there was. Uh, no, I really struggled in in college, and actually, it wasn't until I started working at this lab and and getting into the psychology major or the the coursework for my psychology major that I kind of hit my stride. But I think from two perspectives, it was a hard transition. I just wasn't prepared for standing on my own two feet and not having someone there to reassure me about all of the fears (laughs) that I had starting from when I was a little kid. And I mean, it's a longer discussion probably, but no, I I struggled with a tremendous amount of anxiety and, um, and depression when I first started in college. Um, And it got better over time with the help of 
talk therapy and medication. And I think just, you know, getting older and wiser and, and growing mm-hmm. into my skin a little bit. But yes, it was a very, very hard transition. Um, academically, well, I, it was okay, but it was very much impacted by how I was feeling emotionally. Everything else. Yeah. No, I really, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that's something that a lot of people go through, frankly. And as, um, you know, if you're an undergrad or in law school, you know, like you look at these law firm bios and everybody looks like, like, you know, we were all born just knowing what we wanted to do. So I think it's really powerful just to share that. No, I didn't always have it figured out. I certainly had my own struggles and, you know, I'm more so on the other side or at least farther along in my journey. And I really, I really hope that that helps someone. Um, but we got to working in the lab during college. Sounds like you did that post-college for a number of years. So you, you graduated no, with your degree. No, no, okay, I, no, no, no. Just yeah. for a little bit, just for a little bit after, it, um, after it, I graduated it. while I was trying to okay. figure out what I was going to actually do. Um, yeah. And then what really shifted my course was I had put off <laughs> jury duty. I had been called for jury duty numerous times, I guess, because my permanent address was still my parents' address. So I had been called in New Jersey several times for jury duty, um, was able to put it off because I was a full-time student. When I graduated, I was no longer a full-time student, didn't have that excuse, had to serve on a jury um, or had to go to jury duty and then ultimately was called to serve on a medical malpractice case um, and sat through days of testimony, listened to the closing arguments, listened to the um, plaintiff's lawyer lie during closing arguments, Ooh. then about a fact, just misstate, misstated a fact entirely, um, listened to the judge then say, Closing arguments are just arguments. They're not evidence. You have to weigh the evidence, go back into the deliberating room and rely on the record that you've been given. I assumed, I don't know, maybe a little naively, um, I was 21 at the time, um, that my fellow jurors would take to heart what the judge had said. And, um, And lo and behold, they didn't. And they were really latched on to this one misrepresentation by the plaintiff's lawyer. So you know, even though at that time I was pretty reticent to share my views on things, I felt obligated to speak up and um, try and convince my fellow jurors that, in fact, the written record did not comport with what this lawyer had said. Um, And I did it. I was able to convince these these people who are all different ages and all different walks of life um, that that we could not find in favor of plaintiff based on this this misrepresentation, which really did turn the case one way or the other. And I felt really powerful and effective and like I had a voice that I wasn't really necessarily able to exercise in my own personal life maybe um it was so much easier to be advocating for a position that was there in black and white or or on behalf of someone else and so I thought to myself huh maybe this is somewhat like what I might like to do going forward and as I said before I think that experience was kind of the trigger to thinking about the law and and being a lawyer. But it certainly, you know, there were already, I had some doubts about going into academia because it just Mm -hmm. seemed like a very, very long road with a very, very uncertain outcome. And I didn't feel like I was going to be happy just going wherever I got a tenure track position. 
meanwhile, fast forward, being a lawyer is a very, very hard road <laughs> to hoe. <laughs> I think if I had known then what I know know now, it's like uh, both, both are pretty hard to, to do. But um, but I, I felt like there was just some more certainty um, in the law and um, and it seemed like something that would suit my personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I decided to um, look for jobs as a paralegal. And so that's that's how I wound up um, in my first position after graduating from college. Okay. There's actually a quite a bit to unpack there. One, I did not expect jury duty to be what really planted the seed, but everything you described there, it makes sense. And the, the funny thing, you know, I think all the lawyers who listen to this know this, but maybe the law students are, maybe there's even college students listening. I don't know. Don't. It's very hard to get on a jury once you're a lawyer. So yeah. to actually have that experience and having watched it, you know, obviously it's a different perspective then from, you know, say now, not that you're intimately familiar with all those things, is, is actually very valuable for a future litigator. And I say that as somebody who most recently I made it to voir dire in jury duty. Maybe this is pre-pandemic. And, you know, as many listeners know, I'm a former litigator. I obviously haven't practiced in about seven years. I was so excited. I was just yeah. like, this might happen. But of course, you know, if you ask me what my job is, I'll say something like diversity director. No one knows I'm a lawyer. But as they asked me more questions and they learned I was a lawyer and they asked me what firms, I, it was very clear that I was out. I was super, yeah. Yeah. I was super out. So the, I know. So the litigators can really appreciate um the, the few times I've heard of litigation associates or partners on jury duty, everyone's very excited. They're like, can you believe it? They actually got on the jury. And yeah, it's, it's an amazing <laughs> insight. It's like, how, where, how else are you going to get that kind of insight but sitting on a jury? But yes, exactly. you're right. No, nobody, nobody wants us. Everybody's like, <laughs> no. move along. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, in many ways, they don't want us because they're afraid you're going to do actually what you did, yeah. which was point out what they should be doing, you know, in that room, like, let's yeah. look at the record, let's look at the facts. And then of course, it's, it's great that that caused you to then want to, you know, get a, a job in the legal industry. So you could sort of start testing and vetting whether or not it's what you wanted to do. So you were then a paralegal, it sounds like for a few years, and then decided to go ahead and apply to law school. Could you speak on that, that time period a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I was a paralegal for two and a half years. And I actually was a paralegal at the boutique litigation firm that ultimately merged into Foley. Um, and so lots of the people that I, I continue to work with to this day are, were my colleagues um, back when I was 21 and 22 years old. Um, and we were very different. Um, but yeah, the experience was um, was what I hoped it would be, which was enlightening. I really wanted to test the waters and to figure out if this was something that was going to be of interest to me. And um, and it was for a variety of different reasons. One, I wound up working on um, one particular case that um, was in the Southern District of New York, and we represented um, a variety of different um, individuals all of whom had invested through an introducing broker. They were all from Lebanon and they had invested through an introducing broker with Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. And so lo and behold, this introducing broker was a fraudster and they lost all their money. And we were sort of the 
um, David fighting the Goliath um, because mm. the case was brought against Bear Stearns and Lehman um, on the grounds that they really should have known that this introducing broker was 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 defrauding his clients. Um, so it was very appealing um, to to sort of be introduced to a commercial litigation case through such an interesting fact pattern. Um, and I just really was captivated by how um, important words were and how much fighting could be done through really carefully crafted arguments and you know strategic thinking and it just it it just seemed exciting to me um, and I, I loved the drama of being in court and watching really really expert practitioners on both sides by the way Peter Wang and Todd Norbitz were the litigators and then in the New York office who were working on it and they were just so skilled but the lawyers on the other side were you know very very skilled as well and so it was just this theater um, and were just such amazing um, types of arguments and creative thinking. So I, I loved it. And I said, okay, this is the, the, the stuff that I was doing, making binders and making mm-hmm. photocopies and putting things in alphabetical order, uh, you know, that, that got tedious, but definitely looking at what my work product was going towards really made me feel connected with the case. Um, that's wonderful. So, and that's great context. Yeah. And I, I really enjoy you reflecting on it and you can tell you, you know, picked the right area of practice because I, I won't go so far as to say that you're romanticizing, but I think the corporate lawyer would be like, no, None of this is that yeah. interesting. It's too many words. It's too much writing. <laughs> but and I think also perhaps as students in particular listen to guests on this show, when you hear about, I mean, frankly, you know, the passion and interest that people have in their careers and their practice areas, I think you just exhibited like what your goal is, what you're trying to find. And that just sounds like a really tremendous way to get introduced. So you know, you, it sounds to me like you kind of fell in love with the process and the advocacy. And then so you decided, let me go ahead and get get my JD. Yeah. And with the people, I have to say that I, I yeah. do think that, you know, the, the practice of law is kind of like the practice of law. There, there's, you know, good parts, there's bad parts, litigation is what it is. But um, I really came to value working with people who um, brought an intellectual rigor to the practice were extremely ethical and professional in the way that they dealt with things. I mean, this was a case that was really, really hotly contested, but everybody treated each other with a high degree of respect. And, um, you know, there were just, it seems trite to say niceties observed, but I just was very impressed with um, how, despite how hot tempers could get about the subject matter, the lawyers that I was working with were, um, were, were very, um, for a lack of a better word, just very, very professional and ethical in the way that they dealt with both their yeah. clients and the That's other wonderful side. to see it with the bar set so high. And then something, and I know I will have mentioned in the um, intro, which I have not recorded yet, but by the time this publishes, I will have, is it's also wonderful to hear your journey, given that you, know, you started as a paralegal, went to law school, and now I'm talking to you as you know a partner and the office managing partner of New York. And I know you've held other leadership roles throughout. So just I mean, your arc with this office in particular, I think is a fabulous one. So let's keep moving through it. Law school. When does that happen? Where did you go? How did you decide where to go? Um, I went to Cardozo School of Law. Um, the decision was really driven um, in part by, once again, my desire to stay in New York and um, and and in terms of you know 
what was a good fit for my needs at the time. I was very much looking to continue working while I went to law school and Cardozo had a program that was part-time for your first three semesters. So you started in May and you continued back-to-back semesters for three semesters and then starting your second year you were kind of on a a full-time normal track and so it was nice to be able to transition to law school and continue to work as a paralegal um, and work on that one particular case Um, it was going to trial I really wanted to be a part of the trial team Um, and so the the kind of the stars aligned in it and it worked out well you went to law school also with a lot of context that I think a lot of law students don't have who um, perhaps haven't worked. I mean, I certainly was someone who I knew what lawyers did. I knew I probably wanted to be a litigator, but I'd never supported a trial or litigation in that way. So how was your adjustment to law school given all that you were balancing? Well, the adjustment to law school was a lot easier than the adjustment to college because you're right. I did have a ton of context. I had already gotten into the mindset that you wake up in the morning and you have eight or 10 or 12 or 14 or whatever your day is going to look like hours to get a certain amount of work done. And so I treated law school like an extension of my professional career. And so I would really set aside time right after class to do the reading for the next day. I would, you know, I was really disciplined. I would like, you know, go and eat for 15 minutes and then get back to the library and continue and then come to the firm to continue working. And so um, it really served me well. I was a lot more focused um, and probably a lot less stressed out than I otherwise would have been because it was like, oh, right, there's all sorts of things that you have to do at work where someone's not breathing down your neck and giving you a deadline every single day, but you have to organize yourself in a manner that's going to enable you to meet that deadline that's two months down the line or whatever it is. So, you know, from that perspective, law school was a, was a pretty easy transition and I liked it. I, I liked the intellectual challenge of, of law school. And I really liked focusing in on learning the substance because I had gotten a lot of procedure as a paralegal. I really had absorbed a lot of like just how you put one foot in front of another to get something out the door. Um, so it was nice to see the other side of it. Didn't love the Socratic method because of you know some of the aforementioned anxieties, but (laughs) absolutely. Right. Well, and there's a couple of things you've said for me, just reflecting on my own journey to have some context about civil procedure and the federal rules and how that actually looks. I mean, I'm an, I'm embarrassed by how little I understood, like I could kind of parrot things back to you, but I really didn't get it. So I have a little bit of jealousy about understanding how this actually (laughs) gets applied. Um, And then also you are not the first guest who either worked prior to law school or work during law school and the perspective that brings. And I actually think it sounds weird that having more responsibility would somehow make law school easier. But I think you you only have so much angst or anxiety. You can give one thing and there's less, frankly, just to channel to worrying when you're also balancing a number of other things. So I think that's really interesting. But I'm thinking for you then, I'm assuming you went in knowing knowing litigation is what you wanted to do. Yes, I definitely um, did. Yep. So how does that then work for you with, I mean, and was it, I, I'm hoping to rejoin my, my current firm as an attorney. How did that, how did that unfold over the next couple of years while you were still in school? So I actually did a lot of um, work for nonprofits while I was in school. I joined something called the courtroom advocates program during my first year. And essentially um, the 
the program paired law students with a variety of different social and legal services organizations in the city to put the students in family court advocating for um, survivors of domestic violence in their petitions for orders of protection um, against their abusers. And um, so it was still litigation, but it was a very, very different species of litigation. Um, and I I liked it a lot. Um, it felt like a good combination of, um, you know, all the things I liked about litigation, standing up in court and arguing on someone's behalf and organizing the facts that you had in a way that you know, presented your client's best case. Um, and, and then also doing something that was of tremendous value to, to society and to the individual you were helping. So I had a back and forth about whether or not that was something I wanted to do. And I, I spent time at um, New York Legal Assistance Group in their domestic violence unit over my first summer. And I continued working there through um, my third year of law school. Um, and it was really, you know, I had a job offer from a social services and legal services organization. And, um, and then I was still trying to pursue an offer from Foley. And it came down to really deciding which um, I was going to, to choose. And certainly finances played a role in it. Um, but more than anything else, I felt like that draw back to the people that I really, really enjoyed practicing with, which is not to say I didn't love everyone at New York Legal Assistance Group. They were amazing. But um, I, I just longed to be with these amazing practitioners that I had been working with as a paralegal. And had that office then become Foley in that time period? Yes, that's correct. So I came as a um, summer associate during my um, second summer in law school, and we were still the predecessor law firm. And then by the time I came back as an associate. That's fantastic. It's also interesting. So I was a summer associate at Foley in Chicago summer of 2006. Um, and I think you're a, you're a 2005 JD. So at that time That's you would right. have presumably been like a first, first year around that time. And it's Foley's been a, a very large firm for quite some time. I would say then, I'm not sure if you recall, you know, it, it still was a firm with probably 10 or 12 offices, probably seven, 800. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I'm guessing and someone, mm -hmm. yeah, somebody may be yelling being that so, so wrong or even bigger. But in the time that you've been at the firm, we've gotten a lot bigger. Um, now our headcount's around 1,100. I believe it's 23 U.S. offices and, and two abroad. And so there's so many things that you've probably seen grow and change over the last you know, 15 plus years at the firm. Um, so that's just interesting to, to have been you know, at, at a boutique for that paralegal experience that then grows into Foley. But so let's talk about you joining Foley. Presumably you joined as a litigator. I did. I joined in the litigation group as part of uh, yeah. Yeah, BLDR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've been here a number of years. We, we have to also specifically talk about leadership. So I'm going to try and like kind of segment that discussion for a few minutes from now. Um, and we certainly can't go with year, you know, through each year of your development. But I would love if you just had some maybe early reflections on life as that more maybe junior to mid-level associate. And then also for you, maybe it's a little bit different because you had that paralegal experience. Perhaps you could hit the ground running a little bit more, but, but what was it like in the early years as you're sort of, as you're finding your way as a litigator at Foley? So um, I was very lucky. Um, 
And I use that term advisedly and not euphemistically, because when I tell you why I'm thinking I'm lucky, it seems kind of inconsistent. But I was very lucky when I walked through the door at Foley. um, One of the first assignments I was given was to fly to Milwaukee and to be part of a very, very, very big document review that had pulled associates from all across the firm to um, the Milwaukee office. We were going through, I mean, this was part of the review was electronic, but part of it was blowing dust off boxes that had been archived for 10 years and pulling out leather bound books and flipping through it and creating an actual paper coding sheet where you bubbled in like a standardized test how what the tags that you were applying to particular documents I mean it was it was amazing um in a bad way (laughs) but what was amazing about it in a good way was that I met associates from across the office I mean all across the firm and from all different offices and so suddenly the firm didn't seem like an 800 person firm it felt like a 20-person firm where I was meeting someone who was very representative of all of the different offices that they came from. And I, um, because of the length of the document review and how much the, how, how critical the documents were to the arguments that were being made, um, I and others who were working on it just wound up having a wealth of very specific factual knowledge and continuing to work on the case and then having exposure to the partners who were managing the case and the partners who were making the strategy decisions. And so early on, I saw how critically important the most basic component of fact investigation was to the ultimate outcome and at the same time got this really wonderful opportunity to to meet people and to get close to them that I wouldn't have had if I was just sort of sitting in my office in New York working on, you know, a research memo. Um, so that's why I think I was lucky. It was really just happenstance. I was like the person, the first person in the door, they were like, great, great, you're new. You can go, you know, go to go do this doc review. Um, but it really, it really changed my view of, um, you know, just a big firm and it really changed my view of how important little things like doc review are. And there was a point in time, obviously it's changed now, but there was a point in time through my sixth year that I could trace every single case that I worked on and every single partner I worked with to the work that I had done on that initial case. It was unbelievable. <laughs> um, so yeah. Wow, there's a number. There's a number of things wrapped up into what you just said. Okay, I guess first things first, just for listeners, because I'm sure law students they've heard the word doc review, they don't know what it is, um, and essentially as a part of I'd say large scale litigation, there are a lot of documents that need to be looked at to figure out what exactly went on as of you know part of you know plaintiffs allegations. Um, nowadays, a lot of that is done electronically, not exclusively, but just to orient people as to what you're talking about. But you were physically opening boxes of documents, looking at them and seeing if they were relevant in some way um, to the case that you are working on. So just in case people are wondering what that what that even is. Um, but then also your comments on making this big firm feel smaller, I think, are are great. Um, I've had other people make certain comments where I think law students can be daunted where you hear a firm is that many offices, that many lawyers. Is it going to be impersonal? I feel like I'm better off going somewhere that's much smaller. But ultimately, this comes down to people. And that was a great way for you to meet all sorts of 
people in person. Um, And then, of course, the seeds that planted. And another thing, and I don't know how much we'll sort of weave in advice to future litigators, but you said something about the facts and Mm -hmm. how it allowed you and others to have a mastery of the facts. And frankly, I think, and maybe you have some commentary on this, that is often a way that associates can make themselves indispensable Mm -hmm. early on is maybe you don't really know what's going on with all of this court stuff and what sort of things we're going to file when, but you often have a really good chance at figuring out what what happened. So I don't know what your thoughts on that are, Anne. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I remember the the moment where I had been you know, reviewing whatever box of documents it was and putting together summary email that went to the senior counsel who was managing the doc review. And then that got turned in turn given to the the partner. And I think it was Jim McCune in, uh, in Milwaukee. And I, he called down to like the war room that we were working in. And he said, you know, Ann Seckel, who is she? We, we need to talk to her about this particular fact and document that was in one of these summary emails. And, um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, litigation is about marshalling the facts and so it and 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 then applying the law and so if you are able to be the person who knows a particular fact or who pays enough attention to the document that contains the critical fact because lots of things can be missed you are going to be as valuable as any other team member um, you know partner senior counsel alike and so um i i've always taken that with me that um that you know, the, the little things really do matter and they don't just matter because you say it kind of in a euphemistic way, like, oh, everything matters. It's like, no, really, this is very important. And it's a nice opportunity for associates to um, to really flex their muscles and show just how much they know when they're when they're working on reviews like this. Absolutely. That's key advice. OK, so I'm going to slowly like move to like, let's say the next segment of your career. But I also should probably toss out there that as an associate, it seems to me you also figured out how to distinguish yourself more broadly throughout the firm as you also became a member of the Associates Committee and subsequently went on to be chair of the Associates Committee. And there may even be some other leadership things I'm, I'm missing that you did. And I don't know if you have any comments on that, maybe the Associates Committee in general and perhaps how it came to be that you joined and ended up being the chair. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I joined or was able to be the New York representative because I had um good sponsors in the New York office. Um, and, you know, sponsorship and mentorship is something that um, has is just, they're interesting concepts in a law firm. Um, and I, I have always seen that there's a distinction between mentors and sponsors. And I've had great, uh, in, I've had great individuals in both categories with respect to the associates committee. Um, the, the representative who was rolling off was this um, lawyer, Yonatan Aronoff. And um, he knew me personally, he knew me in a professional setting. And he just said, like, I think you'd be really good at this. And of course, I said, "Ah, no, this is not not for me. I don't think so. And but he really pushed through the recommendation that I take his spot on the the committee. Um, And then, you know, kind of the rest is history. I, 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 thought that, I mean, I I really appreciated the opportunity to be on the Associates Committee for all of the reasons that we talked about with the document review. It was just wonderful to see in person, to meet people from all different offices, to hear how their concerns differed or were aligned with those of, you know, the the New York Associates. Um, And um, I really grew to appreciate firm leadership during that time period Mm -hmm. because 
um, they were so generous with their time. That's the first and, and biggest thing. I just learned that, wow, the way that you engender trust with the people that you lead is to just put in the time, like to just sit there through the three hour meeting, listening to all of the issues that the associates in LA and New York and, and DC have and the things that they like and that they don't like. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a really, um, interesting and fulfilling experience because it, it made me feel so good about my choice to be part of Foley. And it was so educational in that it really, you know, demonstrated um, to me at least, you know, how, how you effectively lead, how you effectively listen to the people that you're trying to inspire or trying to motivate and in, in, to, to do their best work. And I also really think that the Associates Committee, amongst other things, distinguishes fully as a firm, that it is this body that is, excuse me, very well respected within the firm. And that, as you've highlighted, leadership really listens to. I think a lot of large law firms have Associates Committees. Um, And I'll, you know, joking, but but only sort of, it's more of like, well, what coffee do we have? It can be these really sort of softball issues, but the things that the Associates Committee will raise and that the firm will respond to or, you know, even very likely implement in terms of like literally hiring. You know, we have an executive coach at Foley um, because of the Associates Committee, right? It's a tremendous offering for us to have. So it's just really interesting to hear you reflect on that. And then also, I think for individuals who end up in various leadership ranks and, you know, senior leadership ranks at the firm, it started early. And it's not that, you know, you can't be an office managing partner one day if you weren't on the Associates Committee. But I think what you'll see is that, you know, folks who are in various leadership roles, they figured out ways to get involved and to, to help the firm early on in their career. And I definitely see that exhibited in your 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 arc at Foley. Um, okay, so moving on, maybe some quick, we got to get you up to being a partner and being an office managing partner. And I will talk about your practice specifically before we are done today. But you then make that transition to senior counsel and then then to partner while continuing to build your litigation practice. I don't know if you have any reflections on that transition or how the firm supported you or how you how you did it. But any thoughts you have from that time would be appreciated. Um, so I think that um, when senior counsel, I've often said this, I, I think when, when you are on the runway to taking off and being a partner, it, it, it's among the most stressful times because you really are still developing your core um, practice skills. So you're still developing who you, what your voice and court and, and how you act with clients and who you are and your and strategies that you're going to employ. And then at the same time, it's like, okay, please also perfect that, but then turn and start thinking about how you are going to not just be the good lieutenant, but you're going to take over cases. You're going to be leading them. You're going to be building your own clients, building your own relationships. Very, very hard time. Um, I I was also, um, I had my daughter when I was in my last year of senior counsel. So, and, and I was the chair of the associates committee. So those life and professional events coalesced to make for a very intense year, certainly. Um, but um, advice, I'm trying to think of what, what made it okay. I think that what made it okay is that the message I always got from the firm was that, um, you know, we're in this with you, that there is no magic time to becoming partner. It's like when you are ready. And so as long as you are putting in the effort and you're dedicated and you're developing, it's not like, well, you've been senior counsel for two and a half years now and you haven't gotten to 
you know, made all the met, met your goals the way we want you to meet your goals. So you need to leave. It was very much like the potential is there. You're working very hard. We're working with you to help you figure out when and how you're going to get to your um, your next level. Um, and so, again, while things definitely like life gets busy sometimes, um, I never felt like I was in it by myself, I always felt like the people that I had been working with for, for many, many years were there to support me and to give good advice about what I should focus on to get myself to the next level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also a great thing to highlight. Overall, Foley's not an up or out firm. Um, and that's the thing, you know, for, for law students listening, we firms actually do have different structures, certain things you can see in our leverage. Uh, overall at Foley, we have a one-to-one partner associate ratio, which which generally means, you know, if somebody really wants to make partner, there is a path for them to do that at Foley. You know, it's a matter of if it's something you want, you know, if you if that path makes sense for you. But as you highlighted, it's not a firm where it's like, well, if you don't make partner by your third year, um, you know, by your third year senior counsel, go do go do something else. And I actually think I think that's great because the firm wants to make sure once you are partner, you're successful. And so creating, even though we do have trends, people usually make senior counsel by X and usually partner by Y. Like you said, to the extent things need to bend or flex due to life events, um, the firm very much supports people in that. All right. So we're going to pause a little bit before I get to you just reflecting on being an office managing partner of New York. But tell me about your practice, Anne. Obviously, you're a litigator. We've talked about it some. But what does your practice mix look like? You know, what's what's keeping you busy these days? Yeah, I mean, I... I touched on this a little bit in my professional introduction and in that, um, you know, I have a focus on employment litigation and employment counseling, um, but I really do maintain a pretty robust general commercial litigation practice. Um, and, and what that means is, you know, I'm in court, I'm litigating cases like breach of contract and fraud and breach of fiduciary duty and tortious interference claims for clients in a variety of different industries. So I'm not necessarily focusing in on, on one industry or, or, or one segment of, uh, of a particular industry. I'm doing it for a lot of different companies, which is nice. It's a little bit unusual. I think the drive in um, big law is to be very, very specialized. And there are some real advantages to that. But I always like to think that I, I've kind of got the best of both worlds because i um, I do. I do focus a lot on on discrimination cases and non-compete cases and hostile work environment. Um, and, and I've gotten to the point where I feel, you know, really expert in those. Um, but because Foley will let me um, have a, a more general practice as well, I get to sort of dip my toe in a lot of different industries, which is nice. I mean, when you're a general commercial litigator, every new case is an opportunity to kind of mm-hmm. become an expert in a new field or on a new company. And there's something exhilarating and in 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 enlivening about that. Um, and so, you know, you feel like, okay, I've got my toolbox, I've got my litigation skills, I know the judges, I know what I need to do, but I get to learn about something totally different and new with each case. So that's nice too. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So for listeners who want to hear more specifically about labor and employment, I've had quite a few folks who are just dedicated l e on the show. Most recently, uh, Felicia O'Connor and then other partners from, from that practice group like you know Phil Phillips and Larry Perlman and a, and a few others. I won't go down the whole list. I also did start smiling and laughing a bit as you talked about how being the general litigation side of things allows you basically to 
become an expert in something new all the time. Listeners, if you ever want to ask me about flood cuts and flood remediation, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> <laughs> because I had some long running cases that that dealt with just that. So that definitely brought me back and, and made me laugh. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I became would... an expert in powder coating for large aluminum panels that are installed on the ceiling of airports. <laughs> like who would have thought? Right. And you'll be walking down <laughs> through an airport one day, you'll kind of look up and you're like, oh, like you actually know a little something or maybe more yes. than a little something about that. Um, but let's transition to your to your latest leadership role. You know, not that long ago. I, and I, I feel like it's inside of six months, but I could be wrong. You became office managing partner partner of, of New York. So what does it mean to be an office managing partner? Um, and are there any just general reflections on that, that latest leadership role that you've stepped into? Yeah, it is very recent. So I think I took over for Peter Wang in November. Um, so I very much feel like this is early days um, uh, for, for me as a as an office managing partner. And, and certainly I think that there are different ways of approaching your role one very, very important role, it's not the sexy part of it, but is just the nuts and bolts administration of the office, making sure that people put in their time so that we can, in a timely fashion, and and so that you can get the bills out so that we can get paid to keep the lights on in the law firm, making sure that, um, you know, decisions are made about our in conjunction with facilities so that our office space is welcoming for clients and efficient and all of those things. Um, That is a very, very important piece of it. And there's a lot of different individuals at the firm that you have to connect with in order to get that done. I think kind of the, 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 overarching um, role of an OMP is to be the the guardian of culture. Um, At least that's the way I'm approaching it. I I think that, um, each office in Foley is sort of given the latitude to really develop its own culture within the firm. It's 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 one of the things I love best about Foley. Um, and so New York has a, a feel and has an atmosphere. And while there are lots of reasons um, to add to our group, you know, sometimes there's a practice group in Florida that has a need for more attorneys in New York. And so we're going to bring more attorneys into the New York office it is my job to ensure that that happens. But the piece of it that I want to focus on is to make sure that the people we bring in are a good cultural fit and really can be embraced by the office and become really engaged members of um, of, the, of the New York group, as opposed to just kind of being free-floating and working with a group in another office. Um, so I, I do see that sort of first and foremost as um, as, as my role and to make sure that I have a good understanding of the people that comprise the office, both professionally and on a personal level, because um, you need to be a well-oiled machine. And the only way you're going to be a well-oiled machine for the client's benefit is to know the personality types and to understand how they're going to work best together. Um, And part of my role is to cross sell. Part of my role is to say, you know, I have this person in the office and I know that there's this case in in California. And so let's connect these people and let's figure out a way that we can make sure that our clients are getting the benefit of of lawyers in in all of the different Foley offices. And so I have to know my people really, really well in order to kind of match make appropriately. That's a wonderful um, overarching summary. And I love what you said about guardian of cultures. You can imagine for my diversity inclusion professional and, you know, talent management professional heart, that makes me smile. Um, 
when you say that. And I think also for people trying to understand large law firms and how we work, you know, this is not going to be exclusively the case, but I often will liken it to almost federal and state where, you know, office managing partners, you know, they're, you're like the governor in a way. <laughs> um, and the thing is, you, when you have a firm with so many offices, like you said, the offices will have different feels. Like some of that's just, you know, guesses or stereotypes you could make up based on geography. Um, and then also you'll get what I call the federal government, which is, you know, someone like myself who's national, who's over all the offices. And what we'll do is we'll say, yeah, all of our offices have these things, you know, that federal mandate, but within the states, there can be some variety. And so I just, I think that's a, perhaps a helpful way to think of it as people are navigating, but ultimately it means that in large firms, we have a variety of senior leadership, um, all of which are important in, in a number of different ways. Um, but Anne, as our time winds down, there's two kind of last substantive questions I wanted to ask you. And the first is, is, is there anything you wanted to touch on that you haven't had an opportunity to raise? And then after that, I'd love to segue into your overall advice to a law student or someone early in their career. Um, I think we've talked a, a lot about, um, or at least touched on all of the topics that I was hoping we would talk about. Um, I do want to circle back a little bit to the idea of mentorship and sponsorship, um, because it's something that um you know, in my new role, I think even more about, I've always thought a lot about it, but, um, you know, mentorship, um, is so important because I think your mentors help you get through your professional career. They're the people that kind of, you know, you communicate easily with, they're the people who, um, maybe you gravitate towards naturally. There are people who have good judgment and are looking out for your best interests. Um, and I've had, Lots of those, um, you know, Todd Norvitz and, and Sue Schwartz in particular, um, I think about the way that they each approached the um, the advice that they've given me throughout my career, and it's very different, um, but I trusted both of their judgments. Um, and then the idea of sponsors who are maybe individuals who are in a position to act actively promote your interests um, to firm leadership, or perhaps they're in a role, to, they're in a position where they can actually give you a leadership role. And they're different. Um, and I think about how that has changed for me. And I, I have mentees right now, but I see myself in a position of being able to sponsor people and say, you know, this may not be someone that I gravitate towards naturally kind of on an interpersonal level, but I see that they have this really unique skill set that will fit really well into this role. And so my job is to identify that and then become that person's sponsor. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think that um, as you, progress through your career, the distinction between those two is necessarily apparent, but I think it's really yes. helpful to, to think. No, about and I love that. that. I love you raising that because like you just said, there, they often can be very different people. Maybe one person serves both, but I think particularly as you're navigating a large law firm, people maybe will forget the role of sponsor in particular. Mm -hmm. You may have a lot of people giving you great day-to-day -day advice on navigating, but are they advocating for you? Are they speaking up for you when you are not in the room? Similarly, there might be people speaking up for you who actually don't kind of give you the mm -hmm. tools to, 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 to navigate the place. And it's just a really important thing because you, you absolutely need both. And I think that in some ways may have been so some great parting advice to end on, but I'm still going to ask to see if there's any um, kind of overarching advice you'd like to share before we we end the show. Yeah, no, and it, and it's advice that I think my my mother probably gave me like first day of college. She was just like, show up, like just show up, like show up and be present when you do show up, and it's 
more than 50% of the battle. Um, and it seems strange. It seems more appropriate, like to give that advice to a new college student rather than a lawyer, but it, it's true. And particularly the second piece of it about being present when you do show up, because, um, it, that concept embraces a lot of different behaviors. And so it's saying yes when maybe you're a little bit too busy because you think it might be a good opportunity for you or you just want to help someone out or for a variety of different reasons. And when you do that, giving yourself over to the experience and not trying to multitask and do, you know, 10 different things at once. It's about, um, you know, looking for opportunities that maybe in the moment don't inure to your financial benefit, but ultimately are going to pay dividends in terms of your connectedness to other people, your connectedness to the firm, to the practice generally, or like just to the, the bar that you're practicing in. So I've, I've always thought that that was excellent advice. And I, I can say that I've never regretted a time that I've said yes, showed up for something and, and been present because it's always led to really good connections, good insight, other opportunities, whatever it is. It's just, you know, and it's so easy. It's like, you know, just go to that lunch, just go, like go down to the conference room and sit with your, your colleagues for half an hour that nobody's too busy to do that, you know, just do it. <laughs> that is fantastic advice. And I, I'll sometimes joke that half of the job of being a, a great, you know, attorney in a large law firm, it's actually not related to your talent at all. It's related to things yeah. like that, like just physically being present and engaging and showing up. Um, final, final question, Anne, if listeners have comments or questions, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Yes, please. I would welcome it. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good talk to you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 